Welcome back, listeners. It's a pleasure to have you here for Learning from Friends. My name is Cade Curtis, your tour guide on this journey. I hope that you've enjoyed the past couple episodes that have been posted up and beginning to kind of ride along with me on this uh, fantastic journey we're going on. So I have a quote that I'm going to start out with today as continuing with this new segment that I've added in. And the quote of the day, this comes from an excerpt from a book called Big Panda and Tiny Dragon by James Norberry. I feel like I should be doing more, said Tiny Dragon. Try to celebrate the things you have done, said Big Panda, rather than regret the things you haven't. So the topic today that we're going to look at is we'll be discussing music's evolution from the 1950s upwards to today's world from a perspective of a professional percussionist who lived it. So this is someone that has been around the block, been around for a couple of years on it. I hope you enjoy the topics we're going to discuss today. Welcome, my good friend, John. Hey, Cade. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a blast to have you. Um, it's interesting that this is my friend, Matt, who I played in a band with throughout high school and part of middle school. Um, this is his father, and he's always over the years been super kind, super courteous to us, always adds an extra bit of humor into every conversation that we have. And sometimes it's, you need that nice kick in the butt to kind of draw you back in. So John, what do you remember about how we first kind of like met? Oh, that's easy. It was a club called a warehouse. And I think, I want to say, was it Marietta? Kennesaw. Okay, Kennesaw. Good enough. Off of 41. Yep. Um, it was raining. I think it was cold that night. I'm not sure. Yeah, anyway, was- I didn't want to be there because I'm thinking, I'm an old guy and I'm going to be around all these kids that are in their teens and they're not going to want me there. I said, but my wife talked me into it. My son talked me into it. So I, I, I had to see his band. Well, anyway, I got in there and there was this another guy in there. I think he was, I think he, I'm pretty sure it was a bass player's father. Yeah. setting up a video cam and arguing with his son about how to run it or whatever. And I thought, no, oh, you know what? <laughs> this is not going to be good. Well, long story short, the band started playing. They weren't bad. I actually liked them. I said, especially the bass player, which is right here, our host, Woo, Kate. That's yeah. me. Uh, he did a backflip. Actually did a backflip on stage with his bass and didn't drop it and didn't drop the lick. I was impressed. So that's how I met Cade. Yeah, that same show, getting there, I had never met John. It, uh, we're sitting there unloading all of our stuff, and we're in the back kind of trying to figure out what's going on with the drums before putting him up on stage. And he's sitting there, and he's tapping on the drums, tuning it up, tapping it up, tuning it up, and you know, talking to his son, Matt, and going back and forth. And there's like a little bit of an argument. I go, what's about to happen here? And next thing I know, we take the drums up on stage, and it sounds amazing as we're going through. I'm like, what just happened here? The drums were crap before we got here. No offense to uh, to Matt and them, but we didn't know what we were doing for a while on, on tuning drums. But And it turns out it was John who sat back and kind of fixed everything and made it kind of sound better because of who knew? I never knew that he was a professional drummer. It's just kind of one of those oddities. But that's a fun little story there to kind of like lead us in. And ever since we've kind of... T- talked back and forth. We did rehab together, uh, not like rehab, like drug rehab or anything, but he, I'd messed up my neck and he was, had his, his foot that was, was going uh, back and forth on with pain that you'd had two surgeries on recently. Uh, three. Uh, three. Like, and we were 
sitting there. And next thing you know, I look over and I'm like, John, like, is that you? And we started talking again. We hadn't seen each other for what, probably about five or six years before that. Yeah. And then every so often we'll kind of just call and talk. So it's fun little stuff on the little world and how can connect. Yeah, that time. was a horrible time. I was in rehab for what, two and a half years at that place. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't want to see that again. And it totally ruined my my drumming at the time. Oh, uh, the timing? I'm taking it? Um, just being able to move my, my foot for my bass. Uh, I no longer can put um, bass. Bass drum is played with heel and toe, um, train drummers. And now I just I just use my toe straight down. Sorry, I didn't mean to get off on a rabbit no, trail. But that's, I, it's I, like I didn't know that. learning to play drums all over again. Dang, that that's rough. Yeah. So today, like when you were born in what what year were you born? Um, just before Moses, nineteen fifty one. So John, what was it like growing up in the nineteen fifties and sixties? Well, Cade, that that's a loaded question. <laughs> I mean, we we could talk about that for 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 hours, but to condense it as far as my life and 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 what I experienced in music, um, I I can tell you that. The 50s was probably for my parents because I obviously I was just 10 years old in, in 1961. Um, it was probably a new age. The wars, the World War II was was over. World, um, the Korean conflict was just about over, and you got all these young kids that are in their 20s. And they're starting families. And it's like everything was brand new in the 50s. I mean, life was a rainbow. You know, um, everyone had a home and uh, new children were being born, which is me, obviously. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I can <laughs> c- congratulate my mother, uh, Clara, and my father, John, for having me. I, I never did at- tell them that, that I appreciated being born. So, but then again, until you're 16, I don't think you really know you're alive. I mean, what do you learn from from the ages one to 16? Uh, you're told when to get up, when to go to bed, do your homework, when to eat, when to sleep. Uh, you know, just you, you can't go here, you can't go there. So, but the 50s to me was that I can remember was a safe place. It was a place where I uh, the families every night got together and we had dinner. Um. Uh, ha, biggest thing when we got our TV, it was in 1954. And of course, it was black and white. The, the, the color TV was around, but it, it didn't become prevalent till the late 60s, probably middle 60s. But all I remember was a little um, 10 inch or 12 inch screen that was black and white. Nice. So, so I, I grew up mainly with radio in, in the 50s and, and the early 60s. That's, that's what it was about. TV to me was a novelty. Um, they're expensive. Well, they were. Yeah. Plus, the best time is when we would go shopping on a Saturday. We would go to Sears, and Sears had color TVs back in the middle 60s. And I used to just go there and just sit while my parents would go shopping. Of course, I was already a teenager by then. Yeah, but still so. getting to sit down and watch TV in, in color whenever you had black and white at home. Oh, it's yeah. It's different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you know, you grew up with, with programs like Batman. Black, Batman was black and white and, until later. And of course, I was already a teenager then, and, and grew out of it. But yeah, anyway. But that was the 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 fifties was more of a, a day of reckoning. You know, it was it was a safe place. You had a family. Yeah. Now the sixties, 
that was different. That was now my parents wanted to give me things that they didn't have. Because okay. obviously growing up in the 20s during the Depression, the 30s was, uh. was pretty bad. They were just recovering from the Depression. Then bang, World War II, the whole world is, is, is um, engulfed in war. The shortages on fuel, food in the 40s. Uh, so now here we are in the 50s, everything is in abundance and they want to give their children more. So here we are in the 60s and um, uh, schools were better. We had hot lunches every day. Uh, we had school buses. Of course, I didn't because if you lived under a mile, you had to walk to school. And I'm talking about- well, That's still nice to live within a mile. Yeah. yeah well, I, I lived just, I was nine-tenths of a mile. And when it snowed, I mean, I'm not kidding you. I walked uphill for five hours to go to school in the morning and then uphill to go home another five hours. <laughs> so where yeah. was it that you grew up at? Like what, what, what state, what city, county? I was born in St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Brighton, Massachusetts. And I grew up in this little town called Walpole, which is 25 miles from Boston. No, I'm sorry. 18 miles from Boston and 18 miles from Providence, Rhode Island. It was right in the center. So um, that is our, cold. <laughs> cold winters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I couldn't wait to get out. But like I was saying earlier, you know, you really don't know what, what, what you are until you're like 16. Then you finally realize, wow, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a man. I'm growing up. I've got, I've got a vision of what I want to do. Before that, I was just preparing. So I always knew I wanted to go to the West Coast. So at, I graduated high school at 16 and a half. At 17, I was in the West Coast. So you had and a goal, though. What was the goal to go West Coast for? Music. Music. One, yep. The whole thing was music. That's what took me to the West Coast. So you are a professional mu drummer, musician. How did you uh, get started with that? And at what age? Oh, my. I, 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 <laughs> I was a musician when I was born. I mean, that's another whole story. Um, I can tell you real quickly. My parents were in a pretty bad car accident when I was when she was seven months pregnant with me oh wow and she um in the in those days the cars in the 50s didn't have padded uh dashboards they were maybe they were mainly metal oh some of them had vinyl but mainly metal and seatbelts of course were not not heard of um they were they were um I guess my father hit the back of a truck that slammed on their brakes because they had hit someone else. But I kept my mom from going through the windshield. Her stomach had hit the dashboard and she, I guess her head just tapped the windshield, but I gave her a bump, but it wasn't bad. But um, they brought her to the hospital and I wasn't moving. Oh, wow. So they told my mom that there might be a problem. They could hear a heartbeat, but I, I, they, they, it was really faint and they didn't know whether I was going to make it. So the whole seventh month and probably two thirds of the eighth month, same thing, very, very light heartbeat. And then all of a sudden my mom said, just before the ninth month, I just, I just started to kick <laughs> and, and, she said, oh my gosh, it's Uncle Eddie. She said, I was actually tapping out a beat. Boom, 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 boom. Wow. And she'd say, listen, listen, to, feel the baby. It's, it's going boom, 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 boom. And, and my dad said, uh, he said, uh, um, 
it, it was a miracle. And they started crying. They said they were hugging each other. They went to the doctors and the doctor said that my heart was strong and that he said, don't get your hopes up that I might be injured. So, um, but she kept calling me Uncle Eddie. And I find out later in life that Uncle Eddie was a drummer. Oh, okay. So that's why she was calling me a little drummer. And I found this out, by the way. I was in my late 30s when my mom told me the story. And she said, um, I always knew you were going to be a drummer. She said, because before you were born. And she told me that story. And I said, so why did you give me such a hard time in sixth grade when you made me take the violin in the fifth grade and I wanted to stop it in the sixth grade because I wanted to be a drummer? And that's, she said, "It's a good point. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. She said, I apologize for that. So. <laughs> but eventually she supported you to be able to do it. Yeah, she did. Actually, you know, um, springtime coming, lawn had to be cut and leaves had to be raked. And my father would say um, to, the, to, to, to all of us, give us jobs. And he'd say, John, you go downstairs and play the drums and serenade us. And I'd say, yes, sir. So all I had was a snare drum and it was a plastic snare drum and it was called Maestro. I'll never forget that. It was, huh. it was blue sparkle maestro drums. And that was in uh, sixth grade. So that's actually when I started to play. So did you take lessons? Yeah. Now, um, we're going to have to jump ahead a little bit. Oh, go for it. So seventh grade, there was a store called Leech Mare Sales. It's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like Sam's Club. You went in and everything was on racks. And this was crazy back in, in 65 where that you would go into this warehouse type store and you'd buy stuff that was open. Well, I'm going down one of the, the aisleways and there it was, the Holy Grail. I just sat on the floor and I started to cry. I looked up and it was a red sparkle set of Ludwigs. Ooh. And we're not talking about the little eight lug um, bass drum. We're talking about the kind I used to read about, the 10 lug bass drum. And it had a superphonic 10 lug snare drum. And all Fancy. they wanted was $199.99, for the set of drums. So, of course, what I did is I got up off of my feet and ran for my father. And I dragged him over and said, Dad, this is what I've been talking about. This is what I need. And he said, that's $200. And I said, I'll work. I'll do anything. I need to have this set. So anyway, we got the, the guy, the salesman to come over and he told us that that was the only set of Ludwigs that they had because they didn't have a franchise to sell. And they were told they couldn't take possession of any of them, that I, that, that was a show, what do they call it? Uh, show model or? Uh, yes. Floor uh, model. A floor model. And I had to take it as is. And, and I was a lucky guy. Yeah. I can only imagine what that set's he, worth now. He said it's, it, it's only been, it was only put up for a day or two. So he said, we've got everything in the back that goes with it. Cowbell stands. He said, you can have it all. And he said, we can wow. give it to you for $150. So you're already getting 50 bucks off from what you yeah. originally thought. So I said to my dad, oh, dad. And he said, you know what? We'll take them. So there were Red Sparkle. I always wanted blue, but you know what? Red Sparkle, it, it grew on me. <laughs> so that was in, I'd say, I think it was just before Christmas when I, and, and, in my seventh, I was seventh grade. It was that seventh grade year and it was just before Christmas and I got my drums. The so, beginning of the dream. <laughs> beginning of the dream, yeah. So I'm trying to think of how old I was. Seventh grade, you're about... 12, 13 years I, old. I think I was going to be 12. 
because I was already a half a year younger. I went to school when I was five and a half. So I was already a year behind. Um, and I played, I played all that, all that year. I mean, I, 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 I practiced, I, I, those days you had 45s. Oh yeah. And I would put 45s on. And, and just and play, play along. Yeah. yeah. And play along. Right. Yep. And I, I realized that, man, you know what? I can do this. It's real easy. It was just natural to me to be able to, to play. Well, you already had the rhythm from being in your mom's stomach. Hey, you know? there you go. I tapped it out. I was doing my rudiments in my mom at, <laughs> I, at the ninth month. So you didn't, did you go on and take any lessons after that, after you started finding it or were you all just self-taught? Yeah, no, the, well, I probably didn't start taking, I didn't, no, I didn't probably, I didn't start taking lessons until I was in the uh, ninth grade. So what had happened was, uh, there was a band called the Disciples. Okay. And they played a lot of school dances. They were already in high school. Some of them were graduating. I was 12 years old. So it was, I was about 12 and a half. And my brother actually started to play bass with 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 this band, the Disciples. Um, and the singer was a pretty good drummer, but he really liked singing more than he liked playing drums. So I was. It had to be in the spring, so I was twelve and a half years old, and I was at a dance, and this dance was crowded. They probably had eight or nine hundred kids, and it was a uh, uh, it was in a hall this uh, that the this city had. It was called Blackburn. Hall. Oh, cool. And um, they they were going to play Wipeout. Yeah. But the drummer couldn't handle the drums. I remember him saying um, that, why don't we get John? Because John can play Wipeout and, and I'll just sit back and then we'll go into Little Latin Loop-de-Loo and I'll sing. So... That was the first time I, I, and I had no idea this was going to happen, but I was, I was at the front of the stage and, um, Larry got on the microphone and he said, John Marchese, can you come up here and we want you to play Wipeout with us? Of course I was ecstatic. So I jumped up <laughs> on the stage and I got on his drums and I play Wipeout and I, and I got to tell you, I was good. And people were clapping because I was only, you know, 12 and a half years old. So, so that's how music, it started. You had the music in you. Yeah, and actually, I started playing two or three songs at each gig that they did. With the Disciples. Right, until summer, and then I ended up playing drums for them. Nice. And So he could, the drummer could then go on and become the singer yeah, full time. Yeah, and, and he was a good front man. I liked, I liked Larry. That's uh, what makes a good band is you got to have a good front man. You got to have good musicians all around, but that front man really does collect people and draw them in. Yep. Really does. Who are some musicians that influenced the development of your style of playing early on? Okay. That that's a real easy question to, to answer, but I have to lay a, a little groundwork first before I get there. You know, like I said, the, the fifties and, and the sixties were, were a boom of music. I mean, it was incredible that, you know, Elvis came and, and then the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were there and the Lovin' Spoonful and, um, cream and and Jimi Hendrix experience. I mean, I can keep going on and on and on, but that music actually didn't attract me. And, okay. and I know uh, that's a mortal sin to some musicians out there. Like, oh my gosh, you've <laughs> got to be kidding! You, you weren't influenced by Eric Burden and the Animals. Well, yeah, I, I was, but that's not what I was inside. I was feeling something different, so I tended to go towards big band. Okay. I, I really loved big band. Uh, my drum teacher, who we'll get into a, a little later, 
um, he was a big band uh, uh, drummer. And when I mean big band is I mean 18 to 20 pieces, not not, well, not a three yeah. or four piece. And so I was influenced with, with people um, like Louis Belson. And you, you, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, some people know him. A lot of people, of course, you know, wouldn't know him. He was big in the 50s and 60s. He was the father of double bass drums. And he was more or less like Gene Kruper. And, and they had these big bands. And by the way, he was a little white guy married to Pearl Bailey. And you want to talk about, oh my gosh, in the 50s, a white guy married to a black woman was just like, oh. It's and controversial. Pearl, Pearl Bailey, she's another one that broke my heart. I loved her. I loved her music, uh, Billie Holiday. I mean, I was just sucked into that. Now, saying that, there was also one of my biggest influences was uh, James Brown. Obviously, I mean, I'm uh, a drummer. How could you be? Why, why would I not be attracted to funk? Of course, they didn't call it funk back then. They just call it soul music. And the whenever James Brown would come to town, I was right there at the Four Seasons Ice Arena setting up chairs. And I'm telling you, I did that for, for three, four seasons. And he remembered me. When he would come back, he would say, Mr. John, how you doing? You're getting big. And I and I and I, I would just be stunned that this guy, this this bigger than life, would, would remember who I was, a little guy to set up chairs. And he one day he looked at me and he said, at one time, he said, I heard you play drums. And I said, Yes, sir, I, I want to play drums for you. And he said, you know, I'd like that to happen, but you know, it's it that's not what, what our band is. We we don't do that. And and I, I knew what he was I mean, I, I was only fifteen, but I knew what he was talking about. But he let me sit up in one of the drum sets and I and I played for him and he said to me, How do you know how to play fat back? And I said, I've been listening to you all my life. Man. I said, I, you know, I, I am a soul drummer. Yep. Um but there was other guys, uh, Buddy Miles. He had a great band called Buddy Miles Blues Band. He was the drummer for Jimi Hendrix when Jimmy, before Jimi Hendrix went on his own. They had a Jimi Hendrix uh, was a great jazz guitar player. Oh yeah, for a good while. Oh, yeah. yeah, and um, they had some great bands coming out of San Francisco, coming down to L.A. Uh, which, of course, I didn't get to L.A. until later. They were already gone. Matter of fact, they weren't even. Well, Jimmy was was already passed by then. Um, other bands, Weather Report, which was wow. Yeah, they're phenomenal. Like that band, I still love listening to them to this day. And that was appealed to me by your son Matt. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. They were like the weather bands like Weather Report, uh, Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa. They were more of a musician's music. Um, if you weren't a musician, you couldn't understand what what timing is that. You'd say, "Well, those are sevens and nines and they'd say, "What?" I'd say, well, it's not 4-4. Four, four. It's different. <laughs> so it's definitely. I said, it's syncopated. And, you're, you know, and it, it was just, a, and of course, I fell in love with it because that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And that's where I ended up. That's what I am today. I, I, I love a mixture of fusion, funk, and jazz. And uh, influences for that would be, oh, a sting. Dave Matthews uh, would be that. Uh, Dave Weckl, who was an unbelievable drummer. Um, Mike Stearns, guitar player, and his wife, uh, Lenny Stearns, um, tall. Um, she's a bass player. Uh, Wickenfeld, 
uh, my my son loved her when when he saw her. He just he just fell in love. And says, "Oh my gosh, um, that that's that's another whole story." She's from Australia. She quit school in her, I believe, in her senior year and said, "I'm going to America. I'm going to be I'm going to be a guitar player." Wow. So she came to America and they said, "You know, you play guitar like a bass player," and that's what she plays today. And she is definitely fusion funk jazz. Oh, uh, any well, that's where I am today. Oh. So you're influenced. Now, did you ever take lessons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Back, back in the 60s, that was a big thing, you know, to be able to, to um, especially if you were in big band. You know, you had to know how to read music. Um, matter of fact, I joined the Musicians Union. I think I told you I was 12, but I was actually 13 years old. And it wasn't that I wanted to join. I was made to join because you couldn't play in certain uh, venues unless you were a, a, a union member. And in those days, you just didn't pay your money and join. They actually, you went to a board of three or four people and they questioned you, especially because I was only 13. They wanted to know, well, wh- why, why do you want to join the Musicians Union? And you're so young. And so I, I went to this, this board and they, they, they were happy. I guess all the answers I gave them, but they had to come and see me play. So I just happened to have a gig that weekend and it was with a little band called the Charles D. Tommaso Trio <laughs> might sound hokey, but in those days, there, were, there was a band at every corner fighting for a job. But fortunately, there were a lot of work out there. If, if you weren't playing some school dance, you were playing a, uh, um, a, a CYO, which is a Catholic organization dance, or you were playing uh, weddings. Weddings were huge, or you were playing parties. Um, there were, there were, there were, I, I tell you, there were a lot of bands, but there was more work. See, that's awesome right if, there. If you had to really suck as a musician not to be able to, to have <laughs> a band and, and get work. So, and I was playing every weekend from probably 14 years old on. I don't think there was a weekend I didn't have at least one or two gigs. Wow. I was ripping my, my kit down, running to another gig. Now, um, Anyway, so the, the musicians um, union they sent a rep out to watch me play, and 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 he said, "Wow, we, you know, we really like what you're doing." And they said, "Did you ever think about taking lessons?" And I said, "To to do what?" <laughs> and and he said, "Well, you know, to to really get professional." So I said, "Well," and he gave me a name of a of a guy's name was Joe Blake. He was a drum teacher. Okay, and he said, "You may you may like this this guy," so. I drove over and I saw him, or I, I was driven over, I should say. My, my dad brought me over to meet the guy, make sure he was on the up and up. He wasn't weird. Didn't want to get people in his basement, you know, which that's exactly what he did. He got people in his basement because that's where his little studio was. <laughs> you know? Well, we went down and Joe told me who he was, told me what he did. And he asked me what kind of music and I told him big band. And he said, well, that's what I'm here for. So I started taking drums and I think I took two lessons a week and it was two dollars an hour two dollars an hour he said i was getting a good deal because he usually charged 250 for a half an hour so did you like just an hour lesson or two hour lessons with him i did four hours a week so two two hour sessions yep and i got to the point where he said to me you know what um you're you're getting to a point where i can't this was a couple of years later he said i can't teach you anymore oh wow that's he the said, biggest compliment that you can get right there well i was 16 years old and he said there's there's a night cl- club it's a dinner club and he said there's a band there that i play with and he said i want i want i want you to play that night he said i'm, I'm gonna wow. bring, i'm gonna bring you out 
and he gave me the sheet music and I brought it home and then I'd play it with him and that's where I made my debut. And it was great. And then I knew, yes, big band is where I want to be. I love the horn sections. I could, I, I could, I could really just get, uh, unless you've been with a big band, I, I can't tell you what it's like. You know? So um, did you start performing and start playing more gigs after that? For, with well, big well, band or no no actually i, I never went <laughs> believe it or not i y- y- yeah we can get into that when i went to california okay i did get to some big band uh um uh, jobs but um what happened then is my drum teacher said look you can play guitar and i said ah, you know i know my chords you know a b c d e f g and he said well he said to be a good drummer he said and people don't understand this a good drummer has to know everyone else's instrument because he said it, it's funny how you get a a copy song and the guitar player does what he wants and the bass player does what he wants but they'll always say to the drummer well didn't you listen to the record can't you play like him so they don't understand that 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 a drummer has to learn if if they're doing a top forty band, for instance, and I know we're getting on a rabbit trail. Oh here, no, that's no, I but, love it. And, and drummers out there, you, you're going to know what I mean. You're in a top forty band. You're not writing your own material. You, you're playing out, and 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 the rest of the band doesn't understand that you have to know every drummer's style to every song, and it starts to get tired after a while. And that's why I couldn't stand playing top forty because I, I had to learn to play the way they played on the song or the band wasn't satisfied. It's okay. The guitar player couldn't do a riff. But the drummer was, had to be the same. Yeah, but the drummer had to be there. Like I had to play Wipeout, you know? What would a drummer sound like if he didn't play Wipeout like Wipeout? It wouldn't be Wipeout. Huh. But yet the guitar... Can do whatever he wanted. Yeah, it never sounded like... <laughs> like the record. So, But that was okay because he was a guitar player. So again, back off the rabbit trail onto the guitar... Is Joe said to me, look, I've got a friend, his name is Lou Dom. And he said, um, I told him about you and I told him that you can play guitar pretty well. He said, but I want, I want you to take lessons with him. So, and the reason why I, I didn't fight with Joe is because I got tired of hearing this. What? You're just a drummer. What do you know about music? Ooh. You know, and, and I'm sure drummers have heard this all the time. You're in the back, you're playing... Um, Look at Ringo. Yeah, just sit there and just play the beat, Ringo, and, and that, that's all there is to it. Uh, so when I started, to, I took guitar lessons for three years. So by then, I knew all my, my majors, minors, diminutes, augmenteds, flats, sharps, inside, outside. I mean, I, I knew them all. And I could tell a guitar player, I mean, I would stop in the middle of a song and say, <laughs> I said, your, your, your G-string is flat. You, you gotta break, <laughs> you're driving me crazy. And eventually uh, that blew their minds. Hmm? I bet that blew their minds that you it knew. It would piss them off yeah. because, you know, I learned a lot of other things. I learned that um, you've got, back in those days, you got a lead guitar, a rhythm guitar, and a bass player, and all their pick techniques were different. And I would stop the song and say, guys, seriously, if, if, if you guys can't get the same, here, let me, and I grab the guitar and say, this is how you stroke bass player this is what you would do i'm the drummer i'm trying to lay a beat back here and you guys are nowhere wow so you can tell it i was not the bell of the ball i went through bands like like you wouldn't believe but the disciples i always stayed with them that's the one that you played first played wipeout with when they pulled you up on yep. stage when you were like 12 yeah but the name changed 
uh, as they got older. Now they're graduated high school, and and I'm in I'm in probably junior by then, and we changed the name uh, of the band to Lord Nothing and the Flies because <laughs> I happen to it was a requirement to read that book, the and Lord I remember yep. one of the guys said. Um, so what, what year are you in high school? And I told him, he said, oh, are you reading? And I said, yes, we're reading Lord Nothing and the Flies. And I remember Larry turned and said, that's the name of our that's band. That's stuck. That's stuck. I'm Lord Nothing and all you guys are going to be flies. <laughs> and that was great. Oh man, I love that. Yeah. I love that. So you played with that band for how long? Like you said you played with them off like for... Until I, until I graduated high school. Okay. So you and- stayed with them for two years. Kind of playing um, to junior year, senior year. Well, actually, I, st- I started with them earlier than that, but yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so you played, started playing drums, took lessons until you were sixteen, and did you were you, when you were still taking drum lessons? Did you start play taking guitar lessons, or did they were they two separate things? Like you stopped taking guitar lessons at? Oh 19? no, I took them both at the same. Okay. And then it got to the point where Joe. Um, wouldn't even give me any, we went through the books and he said, look, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to give you a 45 record and I want you to write the drum part down for me that you hear on the Whoa. record and then we'll take it and we'll compare. And that's what I would do. And then we would get to the point where Joe could play vibes. He had a beautiful set of vibes. And for you guys that don't know what vibes are, they're just a big set of, well, they look like xylophone yeah. with tubes hanging down. And Joe would play the vibes and I would play drums with him. And that's what we would do for an hour. Wow. And just do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And mostly it was for timing. Yeah. You got to get your rudiments. We would go, we would would be in at four, four, then we'd be in sixes and then we'd be in nines and we'd come back to to, to five and and it would be cool. But he would want me to to play with my rudiments. So he can be able to, yeah, just so you knew that you had met your goal. Yep. You can be able that you'd be a good drummer. Absolutely. Was this all while you're still living on the East Coast in Massachusetts? Yes. Yep. What led to that moved to the West Coast? Well, even though that Berkeley Music School had started and a lot of music was coming out of New York and in New England, there was more in the West Coast. I, I, I mean, I think I was seven years old when I knew I wanted to move to California because of the snow. I just wanted to get out of New England. <laughs> I couldn't wait. I, I couldn't wait to shed the accent. I know I still have one, but I, you know, when you get to, to the West Coast, the first thing you do is you shed stuff like, uh, I'm taking the car down because I have to go to the bathroom. You, you know, they, they know where you're from. So. so you had to learn to adapt. Yeah, got to fit in. It's terrible to say that. So God bless you folks from New England. I wish I had the accent back again that thick. I said, it is coming back. I, I have a Southern accent that every so often will pop up when I get around certain family members. Like I have a very neutral accent now that I worked on for when, before I went to Ireland. But I'm kind of the same with you. I like my accent, but sometimes you have to learn to kind of cut it on and cut it off. Yeah. Now, when you moved West Coast, like, what happened? What did you do? Like, did you just kind of pick up and go, or did you have something laid out? Well, it's like my dad said to me that, um, uh, this is another rabbit trail. Now I'm out in the West Coast. It's, It's 1971. And I thought, hey, you know what? There's only one way to go, and that's up. I said, if you don't make it in here as a drummer, John, that means you weren't cut out to be a drummer. I mean, work is abundant. Everyone's happy. Bands are everywhere. But they were known for the recording end of it all. Of course, Nashville was too, but in a different way. Yeah, different genres, different kind right. of places. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was, you know, I saw that building, um, Capitol Records, and I said, that's, oh, where, that's where I'm going to be someday. 
of course, I, I, I did a couple of gigs there, but mainly it was a studio called IAM out in, out in uh, San Bernardino was a recording studio that I, I played at uh, a lot of work. Um, but little did I know the seventies was going to be the, the end of a great era. Okay. And, and what I mean by the end of a great era, I don't mean like music was ending or, or, um, um, the best music was already composed and you'll never see it again. What I meant was, I don't think anyone saw this coming, but it must've been around 1974 and I was in Las Vegas doing a gig and I, I think I was playing with, I want to say, um, Sammy Davis Jr. And which what was, you play with, wait, you play with Sammy Davis Jr. It was just, I was just a drummer still filling that's in. That's amazing. And, and he was horrible. I remember the, the curtain closing. He was screaming at us saying, you guys call yourself musicians. And I just got up and said, you know what? You're on your own. I walked off. I, I didn't need to. to Good to stand that. up for yourself. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was definitely, cause I was a recording drummer. I didn't care about playing out at that point. Ah, so, that's where your money was at was in the studios. Well, it wasn't just the money. It was the idea that, it, that, that it was, it, that's where my heart was. Gotcha. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you'd work, oh my gosh, uh, 40, 60 hours in a row. And then you wouldn't see work again for two months. Oh, you know? wow. But, uh, but yeah. So I was walking through one of the lounges and I hear this piano player playing, but I could hear this beat. And I'm thinking, boy, that drummer sucks. And I couldn't find a drummer. So I just just stood there and, and, and watched this piano player. And he ended and I walked over to him. I said, where's your drummer? He said, oh, I don't need a drummer anymore. He said, I have a rhythm box. And I said, what? And he showed me this little box that made drum sounds. Huh. And I said, now how in the hell could that get by me? And I didn't see that. I said, I've seen click tracks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, most of the recordings I do is only on four track anyway. I, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah, so that in was. The 60s stereo was a big deal. But I mean, you know, one, one, and this is another rabbit trail, but I mean, I'm in a studio and I've got, I've got three microphones on my drums thinking, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> of course, today, you know, I run 13, 14 mics on my set, but oh, oh my Lord. Well, when when he said this is what it is, and he showed me this thing, and it said rhythm something on it, and it, he said I don't need a drummer, and I said, well, I take offense to that because I'm a drummer, and you just put me out of work. I said, you know, you could have had a drummer in this gig, and he just laughed. So wow. little did I know he was on his way down too, because no one saw what was coming. Now, come late seventies, all of a sudden you get this thing called DJs, and they came right out of disco, which was. Terrible. So this is the separation of not DJs like your radio DJs, but like the DJs, the people that are coming out to the house parties and coming out and playing music. Yeah. And I don't think they called them DJs. They they called them something else. And I can't remember it because I was so disgusted. I didn't care. I just wanted to run them over with, with school buses. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was heartbreaking because all of a sudden you get this one guy who comes in with a van and he's got literally boxes of 45s in a, in a fairly good sound system. And he's doing weddings and he's doing school dances. I mean, how can you compete with someone that has every record out there made when you have a band killing yourself to do the top 40? Yeah. He said so. And, I, and I'm, 
maybe I'm wrong and, and I'll take some criticism here, but uh, all I know is this was overnight. Musicians were, there were, there were too much work and all of a sudden there was no work because why would you hire a band for two or $300 a night when you can get a GJ at that point for a hundred dollars and would play every song a kid would want. In the exact version that the kid wanted to. Yep. And I said, well, you know, I'm glad I went studio because this is horrible. This is going to be. And I remember my drum teacher, Joe Blake, said, John, you start out playing weddings and you retire playing weddings. He said, everything in between is just cream. Wow. And I, and I thought, that's weird. Why would I want to play weddings when I'm an old guy? I'll, I'll, be, I'll be like a super drummer by then. <laughs> no. Now I wish I had those weddings to play. You never know. Time, there's still time left. All right, Kate. I, I tell you, let, let's back up a little bit on this DJ thing. Um, I didn't mean to, to to imply that DJs had not come about until the late 70s. You know, in the 50s and 60s, they had things called sock hops. And there were quite a few of them that they had people coming in and would just play records. Sometimes it would be... Uh, a 45, sometimes it would be an LP. Um, but it, it was more of a novelty because in those it, those years, people still wanted to see live bands. I mean, let's face it, the British invasion came over and changed everything. Everyone wanted to see a live band. And everyone wanted to be in a band. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if they couldn't play an instrument, they 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 still wanted to be in a band somehow. So what do you get? You get roadies. You, you get uh, sound technicians, you get lighting technicians. I mean, it, it opened up a, a whole new thing. And, and everyone wanted to get involved somehow. Because let's, let's face it, there's nothing better than being in the light. Okay, so now we find ourselves again in the, in the late 70s. DJs are taking hold. Jobs are, are, are going by the wayside for bands. It's, it's getting to a point where it's getting really hard to find a job. Because for every live band job, there's probably 20 bands fighting to get that. Oh, wow. And they're cutting their prices or they're cutting their music or whatever. And it got to a point where I just threw my hands up and said, you know, I'm glad I'm going studio. I'm glad I'm in a studio. I don't have to put up with this. But my heart was breaking because music was, it's, wait, you remember that? There, there's a song, it's, it's, it's a reasonably new song, and it was called... Um, is this a video killed the radio star? Yes. Yes. I, I, I love that because that's what happened when DJs came in. But when <laughs> I hear that videos kill the radio star, it breaks my heart because actually it didn't, did it? Videos did not kill the radio no, stars it because didn't. now radio is back bigger than ever. Yeah, it is. So, and, and I'm happy, but I still love that song. You I, even sometimes don't even need the radio anymore because of with Spotify and all these other band camp and stuff that right. people are making these few hits YouTube and stuff without even not even having to be on the radio. Right, it's right. It's pretty crazy. Well, it's great. It is, it's, it's, yeah. It's called opportunity and to seize it. You just have to know when. Yeah, that's the hardest thing to jump on it. Okay, so DJs have taken a lot of the common garage bands work. So what did you do next? Where did you go? Well, uh, by then I'm in a studio, so I'm working pretty steady. Um, what I mean by steady is I, I have enough to pay my rent and to, and to eat the 99 center at Fabian's uh, <laughs> restaurant, which was in Santa Ana. And yeah, it was owned by Fabian, the singer. Of course, I never met him uh, there, but they had a breakfast and it was the 99er. And you got two eggs and, 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 and two pieces of bacon and a coffee 
for 99 cents. But if you got the dollar 25, the 125 breakfast, that's when the waitress would tell me, oh, so we have work this week. Because that's <laughs> when you knew. got a stack of pancakes <laughs> with it. And I'd say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> that's amazing. That is funny. So you can be able to, yeah, get yeah. that extra bit of work. But as a musician, sometimes it's just, you got to make, just make the pay rent, payment for the rent, keep moving. Because if you said sometimes you didn't work for two months, right? At some uh, points? Well, yeah. yeah. The, the, I think the longest I went was probably almost 60 days yeah. without any. But uh, yeah, that's a... Another discussion for another day. And, and and by the way, Southern California was one of the last great holdouts because there still were a lot of nightclubs and a lot of bands. Yeah. Um, I played with one band. Uh, it was, how can I put it? Not what I expected. The, the guy's name was Filthy McNasty. <laughs> and okay. they brought him into the gig. Uh, they would drive a hearse up to the front of the uh, entrance and they would pull out a, a casket and we would be playing his theme song and they would bring it into the club and set the casket up in the front of the stage and it would open and he would come out and start singing weird. I, I, all I remember was him saying, I'm Filthy McNasty and that's all I remember. And he would do this whole thing and he, he was actually pretty good, but he would scare the hell out of me. So it sounds like Alice Cooper before Alice Cooper was cool. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I did play probably a couple of weeks with that band, and I just I couldn't do it anymore. It was just the, the people who came into the club were weird. So, but there was quite a bit of work in Southern California. But there was probably a lot of competition, though, of the musicians trying to keep up. Oh, there up. were. Garage yeah. bands. Tons of garage bands. Now, wait a second. You have a story about where the term garage band come from. I got to hear this. Well, yeah, and, and that's actually, it's pretty simple if, if you think of it, garage band, garage. But growing up in New England, uh, we, we, we heard the term. I mean, it was always used somewhere on, on TV or, or in a movie that you went to. Uh, but but it, it never stuck because being in New England, we had basements. And that's what we always played was in a basement. So we never had any trouble. But here I am now um, in Southern California and we get a visit from from the police department saying that we were too loud because we were playing in a garage. We were actually rehearsing <laughs> in a band, and and they they told us that we had to lower the music down. That this woman had a baby next door and she couldn't get the baby to sleep. So uh, I just kept thinking, you know, there's there's got to be somewhere we can play, somewhere we could do this where we don't have to be hassled by by police. And, that's for sure. But you that's where something. the term garage band came from because in Southern California, the homes did not. 99% of the homes were built on slabs. They were, they were just garages, no basements. So, noise. <laughs> and there were a lot of bands in Southern California. I mean, a lot of bands. DJs may have come in in the 70s and killed it, but uh, there were still a lot of nightclubs like I were we speaking about earlier Yeah, that um, still honor the fact that they loved live bands. So, because it's still making money, that's the key thing at the end of the day, right? People still need that live atmosphere because it's a totally different world from listening to the album to seeing it in person, right? Which brings us to another whole genre that opened up in that period. A lot of musicians that that couldn't find work, um, it and this happened to me. It was just by accident. I was I was out having coffee and eating with some friends, and someone said, "Well, what about playing in church?" And I said, what? I mean, I grew up Catholic. 
<laughs> the only thing you ever played in church was bells. Yeah. If you were an altar boy. Um, and I said, what, what do you mean playing church? And he said, well, this, there's this church in Orange County that, that has like a live band every Thursday night. Which and, is more common well, today. Actually, yeah. let me back up on that. They had a small band on Thursday nights, but they had a live band on s- Saturday nights. Oh, okay. And um, I said, what do you mean by band? Like like playing top 40? And he said, oh, no, no, they play gospel music. And I said, what, like a couple long hairs with a guitar? And they'd say, well, yeah, but no, they have like drums and amps and guitars. And I said, really? He said, well, why don't you come with us? And I said, well, you know, is it a good place to pick up chicks? <laughs> and he said, it's a church, John. And I said, yeah. So what are you talking about? Everyone that goes there is a guy? And they said, no, you'll see when you get there. Well, this is something that we didn't uh, talk about, but growing up in the 60s, um, I didn't do drugs and I didn't drink. And this might sound strange, but I saw it all from a, from a point of view of not being stoned. See, that's, so, that's pretty cool. It, well, it, it could be because people are going to interpret saying, no way I was there and it was like, great. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm happy for you. But um, I, I another thing, I, I saw a lot of, lot of drugs in the 60s, a lot of accidents, a lot of people died from from overdoses um i i don't know why it it i never took hold with me I, I i never never liked it never never wanted it even even alcohol i just never craved it so so i became the um i i, I guess i would go to parties and sometimes there'd be people that didn't know me would say well this guy doesn't drink man he, you know he's a narc cuz in those days they they had young guys that were actually police that would go to parties and bust you for for doing marijuana or whatever they did, and they'd say, "No, that's John. He's the designated driver. John doesn't drink. <laughs> Got to have drugs. your role." And and my dad even even mentioned it once to me. He said, "You were either born twenty years before you were supposed to be born, or twenty years. You should have been born twenty years later." He said, "But you don't belong here, John. You just don't fit in." And I didn't take offense, but but I kind of knew what he meant. So anyway, so being back going to this church uh, on a Saturday, I, I went with my friend. His name was uh, Frank, but I, I called him Lumpy because he reminded me of the guy from Leave it to Beaver, Lumpy. Okay. And Frank, by the way, was an ex- a great guitar player and he wrote a lot of music. Matter of fact, people would come up to him and say, um, you know, you should be a recording because he didn't have the look for stage, but he had that that radio face, Ah, you know? And, and and I loved him. And and actually that's where I met him. I met that's another oh. story, but I met him in a studio. Oh. Um and yeah, we'll we'll get back to that. That because that's a great story too. Okay, so, so I'm at yeah. I'm at this church on yeah. a Saturday. Okay. And these these guys were I mean, they impressed me. They were great musicians. And um yeah, the the words were Christian and but they didn't offend me. Matter of fact, I felt pretty good. I thought, wow, this this is kind of great. I don't have to worry about some guy, you know, putting an LSD tab in my coke or or something like that. I said, this is kind of kind of nice. I said, and but why that? Why do all the women wear long dresses? Like down. I said, wow, they all look like throwbacks from the eighteen hundreds. They really did. That's what they dressed. That's huh. you know interesting. So, um, and and I remember because they used to call them Jesus freaks. 
in those days. And this was 1978, I believe. And I remembered Star Wars was already out, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So I looked and said, no, they can't be Jesus freaks. They said they're Jesoids. I said- <laughs> Interesting term. We're going to space. I don't think that ever caught on, but- I, I've never heard it. <laughs> so anyway, to get back, yeah, I, I after the gig, I met the musicians. And these guys were, same story, that- um, you know, radio killed, I mean, video killed the radio uh, star. And they, they were eating up. They they were doing great. And one by one, the bands were starting to go wayside because DJs were just killing them. They, they couldn't afford to go out. You, you can't can't take a band out for $200 anymore. So, yeah, that's going to take money. Yeah. And he said he heard that, that the churches were starting to hire full-time musicians. And I said, yeah, but you're playing like for God. Why would you charge money? And I remember that never sat right on me, you know. Maybe not on a Friday night or a Saturday night or a Thursday, but on a Sunday morning. Yeah, so, and that's another whole thing for later because <laughs> I don't want to upset people. Yeah, that, that's whenever it gets to opinion bases, stuff like that, it's, it's, it's hard to be able to kind of decide because each person has their own beliefs in what they kind of follow by. And yeah. you have that right to your opinion. Yep. That's the key thing that I think we're missing sometimes. Yeah. But but remember, musicians were starving. They just wanted to play. Even if they didn't get paid, they wanted to play. And it was sad to see, especially Southern California, I mean, the best of the best, you know, weren't even getting jobs. Wow. That's that's rough. Yeah. And and then it was it was who you knew and and where you were. I mean, I was lucky. I, I, I had a gig at Disneyland in, in a small four-piece band. Matter of fact, that's where I met my idol. Um, Louis Belson was playing. And when I came in and saw him on the, on the roster, I said, you got to be kidding me. He's playing <laughs> like in the same stage I'm playing, Louis Belson, my idol. And I remember I played and he was such a nice guy. He came up to me and he said, you're the drummer? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're a really sweet drummer. He said, I enjoyed listening to you. And I said, wow, you got to be kidding. I said, you're the man. And that's one of the biggest compliments you can ever receive. Oh, that is absolutely true. I mean, to have, to have your idol that you grew up with, um, listening to everything they've done, to actually come up to you and tell you that, that you, were, you, you passed. But I'll tell you, for every high, there is a low. I can and believe that. <laughs> I think I mentioned way back that I played at this um, dinner club that my drum teacher brought me out yeah. to debut me at 15. That was my low. The gig was great. Everyone on the gig actually enjoyed me. I, I was spot on. My timing, you could set your watch. Um, I even ad-libbed. And the band leader actually looked at me and, and gave me a thumbs up oh, because man. I put things that weren't in the music. That's and I cool. took some stuff out that I didn't believe, you know, complimented the music. But not much, just a little bit. You're adding your twist, yep. your flavor, your style. So that was over, and I came down, and my my drum teacher was there, and he said to me, "Hey, there's a famous drummer here. I want you to meet him." And when I say famous drummer, this guy was famous, and it wasn't Louis Belson, which was my favorite, and it wasn't Gene Cruper, because he was another one of my favorite. It was the other big band drummer, who had got an attitude so long that you could build a freeway on it. Oh, so wow. I won't mention his name. But I remember um, I, I was looking at him, and he was smaller than I thought, but it was actually, well, he was bigger than Louis Belson, who I hadn't <laughs> met in person by then. But he looked at me and said, so you're the drummer that was up there. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you suck. Oh, my gosh. 
Wow. And, and I, he didn't break my heart. But I looked at him and I said, my speed is natural. Can you say the same about yourself? And I remember looking at him and shaking my head like with a smirk and thinking. And I didn't think it. I actually turned around and looked at him again because he was stunned because a table full of people were like, oh, my gosh. And I said, You're insulting the when I'm not your age, I'll be three times faster than you. And I, and I turned around, I said, have a nice life and walked off. And I was only 15 years old. And my drum teacher thought was, that was the best thing that I had ever, because this guy was, was so, his attitude, like I said, was a mile long, just had an attitude, could never, I never, matter of fact, I've seen interviews with him on other um, uh, uh, programs and, and he is just always cutting someone down or saying something not nice about some other drummer. Thinking, you know what? You're not all that, man. You're stuck on one type of drumming, and that's all you do. And that's unfortunate when people look up to you, and you're over there, and you're cutting people down, and that leads also for generations, unfortunate people that take that same attitude forward. Yep. Instead of instead of building up, like like Louis said to me, I can't hold a torch. Louis can do paradiddles with his feet. Can I? No. (laughs) No. But but to take time and, and and actually say, hey. You know, I really enjoyed your drumming. Another drummer, a great drummer who was a teacher, my my last teacher was Peter Erskine. He's a big band drummer. He is phenomenal. Now, I only took a few lessons with him personally, but most of it was was later you, you bought his he you got his music and and you you did it yourself okay. at your own speed. But you you could always be with him and say, "Hey, I didn't understand this. I didn't this." He said the same thing. He said, "You are just really I just love to hear you, John. He said, you, you're just, you just flow. And he said, I've actually learned things from you. And I said, what? Whoa. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. And you know, whether they're true or not, doesn't matter. But that the idea that they took time to build you up, he to made say, you hey, feel good. All this work that you're doing, all this effort you're putting in, you know, it's not going by the wayside. I, I can hear it. Yeah. You're not being someone else you're being john right and that adds something an element new and i can we can respect that so all i can tell you musicians out there is so when you come up against another musician who's starting out or 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 is don't don't try to pick on the the things that he's doing wrong build him up and tell him what he's doing right before you try to critique him because then you'll be open to it that's the same thing with teaching as well you have to sit back and you got to give the compliments you got to show them hey that you know you may made a 50 but you know what that's a 50 that's not like it's not a 40 it's not a 30 you know look at what you're doing and then say hey maybe this is where we can work on it's same same passion with any teacher any uh, musicians any bits you have to be able to help pave the way forward right and that's the best way to do it so now we're back on to this um 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 we, you know, there's, there's, there's little or no work for, for drummers yeah. out there. I mean, I mean, real work. And what I mean by drummers is garage drummers, uh, drummers with good bands, but they're not, they're not up there at the Hollywood level. Okay. Um, I started teaching. That's something that we didn't talk about. No, we I haven't. did. I had 35 to 40 students. What? And like any student, half of them didn't even do their homework or, and I started to get discouraged. So what I did was I broke it down to I kept ten of my best students, and and just dumped the rest nicely. I dumped them, but what I would do is the first time they would come in for a lesson, I would have a set of drums in the corner of the studio, totally dismantled. 
I'm talking about lugs, lug nuts, off the drums, everything, like okay. a pile of junk. Back, back to, to the bare basics, yep. like and everything. I could, I could see the parents looking at those like, why would he leave a pile of trash like that in this, this little room? So I, And I knew that they were going to ask me. So before they did, I would say, I see you're looking at the corner with all those things there. I said, that's a whole set of drums. When your child can put every piece of that drum set together, that's when I'll start teaching him how to play a kit. Right now, he's on a practice pad with two sticks. And that's all he's going to do until he learns every name to every part of those drums and how to put them together. That is extremely smart. And they Because everybody wants to go in right now and just start going through and yep. playing. I want to be this drummer. I want to be that person. Yep. And they, and they would do that. And they'd say, well, and of course, the first thing out of their mouth was, all right, you're charging $5 a half hour. How long is that going to take? And I'd say, oh, sometimes a month or two. <laughs> I said, it's, it's up to your, you know, your, your student how, how much they want to put in. I'm going to tell you this. I charge this much a half hour. I usually give 45 minutes. Um, if my student comes in and they have not done their homework, we're going to talk about anything but music. We're going to talk about baseball, which I could care less about, wrestling, um, how the traffic is on, on 405 freeway. I said, but we're not going to have a lesson. And I said, and if he skips it twice, then I'll ask you not to come back. Smart. I said, because yeah. this is only for, for children who really want to learn. I said, so I ended up having just about eight students at the end that got, I mean, they, they passed me within a year or two. And I had to send them away. Say, I, I can't teach you anymore. You're just, you're really good. Some of them were better than I. But as you did... What happened with you, with your teacher, when he knew when you reached that limit, you have to say, hey, you've now outplayed me and what I can be able to teach you. Yeah. Go forward. Unfortunately, I didn't have any gigs to bring them to. I wish I did. Now, they did get to come to the studio and sit in and see what it was like to be a studio drummer. And everyone thinks, oh, studio is so great. You know, it's not like you think. I'm in a room by myself, mainly, closed up and... Communication, I mean, a glass window between me and, and some of the other band members. The early days of studio, we were all in the same. We just had petitions around us. But the studio that I worked, the first one in Santa Ana, I was actually in a room by myself. So were y'all recording individually by this point? Or were you still recording as a giant band uh, No, we were out? recording together, mainly. The voice, the, uh, the singing w was done. The voices were laid over. We only had um, a four-track and then we, we went to 8-track, which was, oh my gosh, the drummer's got four mics now. But we would have to play back. Like a lot of times, I would play just a basic beat. And then on the next track, I would play maybe some kungas or put in some cowbell or something later. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, when, when it got up to 16 and just kept going, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like heaven, you know? Because you can think of all the little extra stuff to add on. You can add those little extra little pieces with the cowbell, with the congas that you may have not been able to do at the same time while you're playing the drums the first time around. Oh, we yeah. We have the extra tracks. Yeah. There's, uh, let me tell you something about music. You can never put enough cowbell in. <laughs> there's, there's, there's all, actually, this. this so um, Will Ferrell is telling the truth here. You know, when it comes down to this, you know, need more cowbell? I played with this young kid, and, uh, and, 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 and actually, he's the one that coined that phrase to me. I remember he got on the mic and he said, Mr. John, you can never have enough cowbell. Never. So. Was also Christopher Walken in that skit on SNL? That's where my brain goes through him. But Christopher Walken and 
Will Ferrell are in the studio and it's uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. And he's like running back in and goes, you know, you know what that song needs? You know what it needs? I've, I've got this fever. I got, I got this fever for, for more cowbell. And then it's Will Ferrell just walks out to start hitting on it. Oh, I have never seen that. We're going to have to pull that out for you. That oh, is gosh. a classic. Yeah. It is a classic SNL skit. Great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's cool that you never heard that, but that's something that's, that's, that's there. Get all popular culture as it travels forward. Yeah, and I'm an old man. I thought I've heard just about everything at least once. So, well, maybe I have heard it, and I'm just old and forgetting. You know, I so. forget things every day, and I'm 33 years old, and I don't oh, know what's going go. on. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a part of just life in general. So, anyway, so that's one way I made up for, for not playing gigs or not having a steady um, uh, studio job. You know, I always, I always, had, I always had students, which was, which was kind of great, uh, because... A lot of them got better than I did. So out of those eight, how many continue going forward? Oh, all eight. All eight continue? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they all, they all, somewhere in, you know, and by the way, drums weren't their only instrument. I always took, I, the eight that I had always had another instrument, and I always pushed probably towards the end where if you've got to be taking piano lessons in order to, for me to give Ooh. you drum lessons, if you don't know piano, and, and, I, and I would stress I don't expect you to pick up a piece of sheet music and read it and play it perfect just to know your way around that, okay, this is happy birthday and you could figure out how to play it and you knew where all the notes were. So music theory. Yeah. Um, okay, we can go back a little bit. I think I, think I told you that um, I learned to play guitar yes. because I wanted to understand more about where the rest of the band was going. I just didn't want to be... I couldn't stand that expression. You're just a drummer. Shut up. You don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, that that was hurtful. So from that day when I was a young kid, that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to learn to play music, not just. And it's funny because when I when I meet um, other drummers, they'll 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 get on my kit and they'll say, this one guy got on my kit and I didn't I didn't even know who he was and he, and he started laughing. And he turns to, to our keyboard player, who, by the way, has a uh, doctorate in, in music theory, <laughs> says to him, this drummer doesn't even know how to tune his drums. you got to be kidding. And I remember um, Zach turned and said, um, what did you say? He said, these, these drums aren't even in tune. He said, no, they're, they're tuned in notes. And he said, what? He said, do you read music? And he said, no. And he said, then you won't understand. And I, I was there, and I, I think that was kind of hurtful for him. He could have said it another way, but I went up to the to this drummer and said, "I'm the drummer. Let me show you what I did." I said, "I take the common key that all the songs are going to be in on this set, and it, it seems like that's that's what he does. He always picks this certain, and and I I tune my drums to open E because that's the most common for everything." And I, and I, I think I taught that drummer something that day. You did. You, I, that's that's an element that most drummers would just be like, get off my set or something like that. But you yeah. took the time. I said I actually get uh, the keyboard, and I tell him to give me an open E, and I, and I I tune one of my drums to that, and then I go off that, and I just I just go down or up or an octave, whatever I'm, I want to do. I said, and it just it. I said, now listen to the way I play, and you'll see that it just it just flows with the music. It just every drum I hit sounds like wow, that should be there. I'm not overplaying. I'm not underplaying. I'm playing with the music. And See, yeah, that's a piece of information that I rarely have ever heard. I've read through books. I've read through and listened to interviews and stuff. Mm -hmm. No one talks about that. 
that I've out of all the years I've been at, no one talks about that specific thing. So musicians listening, drummers, percussionists listens. That's a huge tip of information there that you will rarely get. Yeah, dr- drummers have this 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 reputation of being yeah, just bang that drum, smack that puppy. You know, let, let me hear that. That that's not what it's about. What did your drums ever do to deserve being hit on that hard? Caveman, I mean, caveman I, I, mentality. I have people telling me. Um, Oh, you know, you got to mute your drum. No, I don't have. No, your mic. I don't have to mute my drums. I, I, I wait till. We, I had an engineer on my first studio that begged me to mute my drums. He said, "These mics are going to pick up everything." And after we were done, he said, "Oh my gosh," he said, "Your drums were like perfect, and you don't have any mutes." And I said, "You just have to know how to tune them, what heads to put on for what you're going to be using, and how to play." So I love rim shots. I mean, other than cowbell, you can never put enough rim shot. Okay. <laughs> you know, but I can do it in a way where I'm not going to, the, the engineer is not going to scream that, that I just blew his eardrums off. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, take, I take percussion serious. It's, it's, to me, it's an instrument. And that's the cool thing you can hear in your voice and whenever I'm recording, whenever you hear that passion, you hear that joy, that's, that's the best part about doing these podcasts is, is hearing that. I'm going to pause us in our episode and we're going to pick back up here because we're at an hour and 10 minutes. I think it's important to give the listeners a break, pick back up with us next, next Monday, and we'll ride from there. As we're going out, everyone, subscribe, follow, like. Um, email me at cade at learningfromfriends.com. Cade is spelled C-A-D-E. And uh, most of all, as your listeners are leaving, remember to let your curiosity Fly high. My name is Kay Curtis with Learning from Friends. 